You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about lacerations. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Fesnick, who is an attending physician in the Division of Emergency Medicine, also at CHOP. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with triaging what types of lacerations should not go to primary care, because obviously we don't work in an emergency department like you do, so what things should we not have come into the office in a primary care setting? Yeah, it's a great question because I think that most um, children and families are happiest to be able to go to their primary care office whenever they can. Um, It's more familiar. They know everybody. It's going to be a lot less stressful and and possibly less expensive for the family. Um, But I think if you're getting a phone call or seeing a patient in the office with any kind of more complicated laceration, by which I mean anything that's kind of involving like cartilage structures or important cosmetic structures in the face like lip or eyebrow, Um, Anything where you think that there might be a deeper layer involved, for example, like over a joint or a tendon. Um, If you have a a scalp or a face laceration that's deep enough to involve the galea, um, those are all going to be lacerations that probably are best um, evaluated at the hospital or in an emergency setting, um, just because they may need a subspecialty consultation or they may need some more advanced suturing techniques. I think um, on the flip side, anything that you think potentially either doesn't need repair or um, possibly just needs a little bit of skin adhesive, if that's something you have in your office, is is great to deal with there. Um, I know we often get kids who do come in and they have maybe an abrasion rather than a laceration that we can't repair or they have a laceration that's inside their mouth that we're probably not going to repair and, you know, we can save them that visit if um, they call about that. Um, anytime you're worried um, by the story, I would say just uh, send, send them in if the child's had a more significant injury. Great. And I think that's important. Like you mentioned, there may be some kids who we can save an ED visit uh, in primary care because it might not be a repairable laceration. Exactly right. And those kids, I mean, I think coming to the emergency room for a lot of families is a pretty stressful experience, um, even if everything goes well. And so anyone we can um, avoid having to come see us, I think families really appreciate that and are much more comfortable with their own doctor than with a bunch of strangers in the emergency room. So when we are seeing a child in the office with a laceration, what are the key components of the history that we should obtain? Sure. Um, So in general, if you can get a sense of like how did the injury occur, that's going to give you a lot of clues. So for example, um, if a child uh, ran into a cubby um, striking their forehead, Um, and just has a little linear laceration and they've been acting very appropriately, um, you're going to get a lot from the description of the injury. Um, On the other hand, if you have a child who um, was holding an object and that object shattered and now pieces of it are missing, you're already thinking, okay, I need to think about foreign body. So getting a sense of like what happened that caused the injury, were there any associated symptoms with that injury? So a loss of consciousness or like uncontrollable bleeding, um, weakness, numbness, tingling, Um, are all great questions to ask. Um, Other things we typically 
want to know is the child's tetanus status. Um, we would want to know if it was potentially involving like an animal or a person's bite because those are going to be a little bit um, more concerning in certain ways. Other things I would probably ask about would be um, when the child last ate or drank, uh, if you do think it's going to be a more complicated laceration. Um, it's great if a child's um, seen in the office or calls the office and um, it has a more complicated laceration, if you can ask them not to eat or drink until they come to the hospital, uh, just in case they would need any sedative medicine, um, that will save the family a lot of waiting in the emergency room. Right. Um, another good component is any pain medicine or anything else that's been given to that child so far I would ask about. Great. And I also often ask what sort of wound care they've done prior to mm -hmm. seeing you. Yeah. And I think sometimes I've seen wounds that have like white substance on it and mm -hmm. I'm thinking, is this coming from the, injury. the wound or yeah. injury or did they <laughs> smear some sort of a cream all yeah. over it? So that's another point that I usually bring People up. definitely do try different things at home um, or may have tried to clean it themselves at home and that's helpful to know. Um, because, you know, what we might recommend and what families may do or may um, have tried already may not be the same things. Right. And you mentioned tetanus. So mm -hmm. this comes up a lot, and I feel like I'm always looking it up to remind myself. So yeah. who needs tetanus prophylaxis? Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting. We think of highest-risk patients are patients who either are too young or just haven't completed a tetanus series to get at least three of the shots. Okay. So anyone who's an unknown tetanus status or hasn't gotten three of the shots is automatically going to need a tetanus um, vaccine. And if it's a higher-risk injury, like a really dirty or, or worrisome injury, I would say those patients probably should get immunoglobulin as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about someone who's just unimmunized and they've had sort of a dirty wound out in, you know, in the outdoors, maybe something rusty, right. um, you're looking at it, it looks grossly contaminated, that's a person I would probably give both to. Okay. If you have a child who did complete the primary tetanus series, has gotten at least three doses, um, we usually say um, you need a booster every 10 years for a low-risk, clean, simple injury, and every five years for everything else. We tend to err on the side of giving a booster every five years in the ED, just because we often don't know exactly mm -hmm. what the situation was when that child got injured. The other thing that you mentioned were bite wounds mm -hmm. and how we handle those a little differently. And we yeah. see these a lot in primary care, uh, you know, kids coming <laughs> in from daycare <laughs> yes. with a bite or a sibling. Sure. So tell us how the management of bites is different. Yeah, so bites are interesting and we also see them quite a bit. Um, and I guess I would say the sort of three big categories that I see in the ER is animal bites, kind of toddler bites, the daycare um, mm -hmm. situation, and then... Um, bite wounds sometimes we'll see uh, over hands and things after altercations or assaults mm -hmm. um, where someone may have punched somebody in the mouth or have, um, have a more significant sort of grown-up bite, as right. it were. Mm -hmm. um, and so in general, for all of those, I think one thing to think about is really irrigating that wound well. These are dirty wounds. Right. Um, when we can avoid repairing them, we do. So if you say you have a really cosmetically important bite wound on your face, yeah, we're going to irrigate that. We're going to repair it. Right. Um, but if you have something, for example, that like bite wound from an assault that's over your knuckles, that's not something we typically will repair unless it's uh, so um, significant that it requires something to sort right. of hold the structures together. And the reason is that those have a, a real propensity to get infected. And to that point, um, all of these patients, whether it's an animal bite, a human bite, anything that's breaking the skin, we would put on um, a, a prophylactic antibiotic. And specifically, we usually use Augmentin unless there's an allergy issue. Mm -hmm. And we'll do that for three to five days for the, you know, just 
right. hope that we would avoid having that child end up coming back to us with an infection. Um, other things to avoid in those bite wounds would be I would never really use a dermabond or skin adhesive because you would sort of be sealing in right. um, the, the contaminant. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting that came out of um, some literature we'd looked at recently uh, was the older practice was to really do high pressure irrigation of these wounds. Uh -huh. um, and there's always been a debate as to whether that helps things by really clearing out bacteria or does it just kind of pressure wash it down deeper right. into the wound. And there's not a lot of great data. So we usually right now say just sort of, you know, firm but gentle irrigation. You can really use um, sterile saline, sterile water. Um, probably the research supports even using tap water if that's what you have available, but just washing it out without really um, damaging the surrounding tissue. More thorough and not as forced. Exactly right. So yeah. you don't want to just spray down. And that's the same um, true for like puncture wounds. So if you have like your cat bite type of thing, right. you don't really want to drive extra bacteria down into that puncture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, those are ones that we want to be aware of. And then the other uh, element with that is if it's your pet dog or your pet cat that bites your child, um, that's kind of uh, one set of issues, and we would say augment in, you know, repair what you must and don't repair anything else, irrigate well. But if it's a stray animal or an animal that you don't have custody of to follow, um, then we would also say to consider rabies status. Um, and that's uh, definitely something you'd want to have a conversation with your pediatrician or with your ER doctor about um, and help determine the level of risk. Right. That's a great point. The other thing that happens in primary care that I'm sure happens in the ED as well is yeah. that people come in with a laceration that's old. And okay. I'm not going to define old, but they walk <laughs> in and they say maybe it happened yesterday, it happened last night. Two days ago. A few days ago. <laughs> so where do you draw the line in terms of repair? Because sometimes we look at it and think, I would have repaired that, but I right. don't know now if it's too late. So when is yeah. it too late? Yeah, there's no hard and fast rule. And if you ask like a plastic surgeon, you're going to get a little bit of a different answer. And so I'll say that the best cosmetic and infectious outcomes are as soon as possible mm -hmm. repair. Right. Um, so the child who's coming in in the first like 12 hours is really ideal uh, because it gives us a chance to intervene before a lot of healing has already taken place. Right. When you're getting out to 24 hours after an injury, um, I would say I probably would not repair that unless it was very cosmetically important. And mm -hmm. I might consider like asking a subspecialist to be involved at that point. Right. Um, and the reason for that is just that we know that the bacterial contamination uh, increases over time uh, and that the wound repair has actually already begun to happen at the 24-hour mark. Um, and so sometimes we'll see a child a few days out or um, another thing we'll see is a complication of a prior repair where the wound hisses or separates right. um, more than 24 hours after the original injury and repair and often we'll end up deciding that it's best to just let that heal from the inside out mm -hmm. and then consider revising the scar when it's mature. Right. So our plastics colleagues tell us that scars mature for about a year and after that they're really eligible to go back and see if we can sort of edit it or uh, modify it to be more cosmetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. um, but you do want to wait until it's completely mature to try to do that. That's good advice that we can wait even a year for that scar to kind of show us what it's mm -hmm. going to look like ultimately. Exactly right. And we often don't know exactly what it'll look like until that time has passed. So some primary care offices may do suturing. And mm -hmm. for those of us who don't and want to know what happens when our patient goes to the ED, what should we do for analgesia before mm -hmm. laceration repair? Yeah. So it's never wrong to give Motrin or Tylenol, whatever the family prefers, before they come in because that's going to give some relief. If you have, say for example, you have a child who comes to your office and has a laceration on their scalp or a laceration on their face, it's pretty simple, and you think they're gonna go directly to the ER for a repair, 
um, and you have access, you could put like a topical analgesic like um, LET or LMX or whatever you have in your office. Mm -hmm. LET we like because it does have epinephrine and tetracaine. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit vasoconstricting and so it'll cut down on the bleeding at that site. Um, so if you apply that with a little tegaderm um, or a cotton ball with like paper tape over it and send them directly to the ER, that may save them um, some time waiting in triage. Uh, on the flip side of that, I think if you are going to do a repair in the office, those uh, topical analgesics and uh, anesthetics are great as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing that we mentioned a few times is Dermabond. So mm -hmm. some offices in primary care may have a skin glue adhesive like Dermabond. So what types of lacerations is Dermabond best for? Yeah. Um, I love Dermabond because I think it's it's just less scary to families, right. um, especially if they have a young child and they're anxious about a suture repair. Mm -hmm. um, I think Dermabond works best with a small, and by that I mean less than a couple of inches, so maybe five centimeters, mm -hmm. um, laceration that's well approximated. It's not really in any line of skin tension. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, you know, very clean, not a bite wound, for example. Right. Um, and those do really well. Um, it does not work well in areas that are moist, areas that have hair, or in young toddlers who are going to immediately pick it out. Right. Because it's pretty easy to pick out of a wound. And it's a it, little itchy. A little itchy. From what I hear as it's yeah. drying and healing. Yeah. It actually, it's interesting. So Dermabond, I think when I was originally a, as like a resident learning about it, I thought of it as this like great pain-free option. Right. It actually has a little bit of an exothermic reaction when you, uh, break the capsule and mix the components together and then you have that little applicator. Um, a, a handful of children, so I would say maybe one out of every four kids I, I use it on, will complain that it feels really hot and burning. Oh, interesting. Um, and so those kids even, I will put a little bit of a topical um, anesthetic on previous to like using the Dermabond to try mm -hmm. to cut down on the discomfort. Mm -hmm. But you're right, as it heals and dries, some kids find it itchy or bothers them a little bit. Um, but it's fantastic for those simple lacerations in the office where you just need to keep those two edges together. My advice is make sure it's really um, sort of clean and dry, the skin around it is dry. Um, pinch the, the tissue together um, so that you get a little bit of the eversion of the wound edges. Mm -hmm. And then as you're applying the Dermabond, um, you're going to do a couple of layers, like I usually do three or four, and you want to sort of go around the wound, not into the actual wound itself. Mm -hmm. You don't really, it'll interfere with wound healing if it gets down into the laceration, um, but sort of go around it, making sure you get like, say, you know, a half centimeter, centimeter um, border, mm -hmm. and then give it 30 or 40 seconds to dry, and then again and again. And after three or four coats, um, you probably have pretty good um, adherence. Right, those are great tips for us. So what about Steri-Strips? Is there a role for using those in yeah. laceration repair? I love Steri-Strips. I, I like using them with Dermabond in particular. Mm -hmm. um, I think it just gives you a little bit more sort of tensile strength okay. um, and kind of gives, uh, discourages children from picking. Um, it is tough in young kids because the same kids who are trying to save the trauma of a suture experience um, are naturally curious about what that thing is on their forehead and right. they will want to pick at it. Um, and so those steri strips can give uh, just a little bit more of a barrier because we usually say don't um, put band-aids or other things over the Dermabond. It's its own natural barrier. Right, okay. So for sutures that do require removal, mm -hmm. we often see those in primary care, obviously, sure. since you're not seeing them back in the ED. So give us 
kind of the ideal timing of removal yeah. by body part or area. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, we've moved really to using absorbable sutures as much as possible yeah, in we pediatrics. Love you for that. We love it, right? Because it just it just saves the family that yeah. much more drama. Um, particularly and sometimes with, like, the removal is scary, just as scary or scarier totally. than the injury because there isn't the analgesia Correct. that there was. The first and there's time. not like the child life specialist right. blowing bubbles and showing right. the iPad and all that, and it's sort of expected that the kid right. will just sit still and go yeah. for it, and they often don't want to. Right. Um, so what? When we cannot, for whatever reason, whether a particular body part or we had a subspecialist repair and they preferred to use a non-absorbent um, suture or um, over certain areas where it just works better, mm-hmm. um, we say that usually for the face, you really want to max out with about five days um, in place and then have those removed. And that's because after that, you start to see a little bit worse scarring. And um, if it's left in dramatically long times, you can get that sort of railroad track appearance that some people are familiar with. Um, With the scalp, we say about 7 to 14 days, um, and that's for staples or sutures. Mm -hmm. Um, I usually tell families 10 days just to give them a particular time to aim for. Right. Um, And as you get down into the body, um, I think the upper extremity, I would would recommend about a week in place, and for lower extremity, more like 10 days, 14 days um, at the outside. Um, after that, you start to have more concern about tissue reactivity and infection risk and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and if the subspecialist is involved, they may have more specific um, preferences. Mm-hmm. I also tell families that if they, even if we use absorbable sutures, sometimes the knots themselves will actually remain um, and not completely absorb. So mm-hmm. I tell families, if you're a week from my repair and you still see a little bit of suture material, go to your pediatrician right. and let them pluck it out. Right. Um, at that point, hopefully enough is dissolved that it's not going to be as much of a traumatic experience, right. ideally. Yeah. Right. So there seems to be some variability in post-repair care, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure we echo what the ED says when we see patients in follow-up. Mm-hmm. So in terms of antibiotic ointment, Band-Aids, yeah. bathing, what are sort of the guidelines that we should be reinforcing? It's funny, because I think we have found, um, like you, that there's a fair amount of variation, and some of that variation comes out of different sort of specialty practices and what their expectations are. Um, And there's not a ton of fantastic um, evidence-based research to support one practice over another for a lot of those elements. I usually tell people, um, and you may get different answers to this, um, that I'm comfortable with anything that's like 5-0 or larger fast gut repair, like absorbable suture. I would Mm -hmm. say put some bacitracin on it. Um, And I ask the parents to do that like twice a day, mostly because it gives them a chance to then look at the injury and make sure they're not seeing signs of infection or dehiscence. Other practitioners I know find that they think the antibiotic ointment breaks down the uh, suture material too quickly, especially if that's a child who like bathes or showers frequently. Um, So I think the general practice is understand that any moisture is going to increase the speed at which absorbable sutures break down. So I tell families it's okay to take a shower, but I wouldn't want you to go for a swim or take a long bath. I won't want you to keep the area super moist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to put antibiotic ointment on it for a couple of days a few times, but don't be reapplying it every five minutes. Right. Um, and then in terms of bandages in areas that are not dermabond or um, that I've done a repair, especially if it's somewhere that I think the child might pick at it, um, I often do put a Band-Aid on, but tell the family after 24 or 48 hours it's okay to leave it off. Mm-hmm. Um, families sometimes request it because they think it's less stressful for the child to have a Band-Aid than to see like suture material, right. and that's, that's fine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things will definitely vary between practitioners, and I think as long as you're sort of advising families to keep that area clean and dry, you're probably in good shape. 
Great. It's good to know that the variability is because there's not a lot of evidence. And Sadly, yes. <laughs> so much. So much yeah. of that. So you mentioned before that it can take a year for these yeah. to heal. So as the laceration is healing, what advice should we be giving families about getting the best cosmetic effect? Sure. So one thing I say to every family is that any, any laceration is going to cause some degree of scarring. Um, and so what we can do is try to minimize the risks to having a cosmetically unpleasing scar. Um, and so that starts really with the family being observant in the immediate post-repair um, period for any signs of infection. So where we see the worst scars come out is where there is sort of pus infection, dehiscence, and, and um, that child is going to have a less uh, cosmetically pleasing scar. Right. Um, once the scar um, begins to mature, so once the sutures have absorbed or been removed, then I say I move to sun care. And so these kids, the, the, the tissue in that scar is essentially like brand new baby tissue. And it's very, very sensitive to like UV radiation and sunlight. So even if you're not putting sunscreen on your child elsewhere, um, once that uh, scar is completely formed, go ahead and put a little smear of sunscreen over it. Right. Um, otherwise you may see some hyperpigmentation in that area later on. And then um, borrowing from our plastics colleagues, um, they often recommend a little bit of scar massage. Um, and that's going to keep the scar softer. So once it's completely, you know, non-sensitive, non-tender, you right. don't want to be doing this with the child who just had the injury. Right. This is but the a, you know, scar. exactly a couple yeah, right. a couple weeks out, um, just gently massaging that area keeps the uh, the scar tissue soft. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't really give uh, particular advice one way or the other on some of the over-the-counter um, products that are out there, sort of Mederma and other things. Um, I tell families they're welcome to use it. I'm not sure what the evidence um, really supports for that or not. I think. Um, the other elements that we've mentioned are probably more instructive. Um, and then I tell every family that when you get to that mature scar, if you look at it and think, this is just not what I wanted it to look like, our plastics colleagues are more than happy to see the child, evaluate the scar, and see if we can make it look better, as it were. Great. So you authored a laceration clinical pathway for yeah. a child. We will link to that on our site, but how um, do you imagine providers would be using that pathway. Yeah, and so it, as I said, I think that, that there's an art to this as well as a science, and there's whole areas of laceration repair for which there is not really an evidence-based guideline, and we found that as we tried to sort of build a pathway. Our hope was just to um, give providers, both at CHOP and out in the community in general, um, some general ideas about uh, where to start. And so that's things like trying to use absorbable suture when possible, um, time frame for follow-up, special considerations, things like antibiotic recommendations for bite wounds, um, rabies prophylaxis, et cetera, and just to gather that in one place. Um, I think it's uh, one of the things we're adding uh, shortly is actually for those providers who are doing suture repairs themselves, um, we actually created some videos in our surgical sim lab uh, demonstrating technique for various types of suture. Um, so simple interrupted or corner stitches or deep sutures and, and so on, just to give um, something that's kind of our own product to, to show people how they might perform those. Very um, cool. Yeah. I liked exploring the pathway, and like you said, it's nice that everything is in one place. So I liked the chart about which type of sutures to yeah, use. Yeah, exactly. And the prophylaxis, as you mentioned, yeah. and the immunization status. So all those things are great, yeah. in prim whether you're in primary care you work in an urgent care or an totally. ED, they're you know, helpful guidelines, I think, for everyone. Just to take a look at, exactly. And hopefully as we continue to add more to it, it'll be even uh, more useful for people out in uh, the community. We, we hope that everybody will get something out of it. Great. Well, thank you so much for thank teaching you. us more about laceration. Fantastic. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.